Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I am your host, Trevor. Today I am joined by a very special guest. Ness Brown is a speculative fiction author by day and astrophysicist by night. They are a proud New Mexican living in New York City and missing green Chile with their husband and two cats, Faust and Mephi. They are currently studying graduate astrophysics after several years of teaching astronomy and encouraging students to wonder about worlds beyond their own. The Scourge Between Stars is their debut. Welcome to Slayhouse Presents, Ness. This is an incredible privilege to have you. Thank you. That is so kind. I'm really, really excited to be here. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. I, I love the names of your cats, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I sense a found a, 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 a fan of Guta. Is that is that you or your husband? It's me. I, uh, you know, had a kind of an introductory literature class in undergrad. My friend and I were obsessed um, with uh, the kind of uh, Faust Mephistopheles uh, dynamic. We were going through that work together and we actually vowed to open up a cafe called Faust House one day. <laughs> still in the works, not yet accomplished, but uh, I decided to uh, essentially uh, hand those names down so that we can have a mascot for the shop when it becomes a reality. I absolutely love that. Um, I'm, you know, a huge fan of literature. And so I feel like I'm always like leaning very heavy on different mythologies um, for like naming pets. So I have a cat named Thor of course. Perfect. And yeah. And my, um, uh, my dog is named Calliope. Oh, I know. Um, I I, yeah, just being such a huge, uh, you know, mythology fan, I'm, I'm speaking with an astrophysicist. So, you know, like there's just this deep, you know, kind of resonant history, um, with, with mythology. I mean, we name constellations after, you know, different Greek figures and, mm -hmm. um, even your ship in the scourge between stars is named the Calypso, right? Which, Correct. um, is drawn from the Odyssey. Very fitting, by the way. I, I don't know if I could find a better, you know, kind of like Island in the middle of the universe than mm. Calypso. That's a great name for, uh, for a ship. Thank you. Thank you. I am so glad that that is coming through that feeling. Um, I'm sure we'll be able to crack this open a little bit more in a bit, but um, kind of my main motivation with the Calypso is absolutely to convey this feeling of urgency, crisis, and uh, loneliness. And uh, I, I really hope that just kind of from the jump, we can get that vibe going. Yeah, the the um, allegory, at least on my end, was like, or or not allegory. What's the word? The illusion, capital A illusion, right? Um, was definitely not missed on my end. I was like, oh, this is this is a writer who really knows what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I I wish, but I'm gonna I'll I'll go ahead and take that. So um, I wanted to kind of break the ice a little bit with just hearing from you. Like, what is your 
What is your astrophysicist origin story and how does that play into some of your identity as an artist? Unlike a lot of my peers currently, uh, my, I guess, origin story is not perhaps like the more common, you know, when I was eight years old, I looked into a telescope for the first time and I knew, like, I've heard that story a lot and I think it's so wonderful to find that passion so early on but it wasn't me at all <laughs> I actually uh, when I got to undergrad I was completely undecided on uh, what I was going to major in and the kind of way that I got into astro was actually by recalling a memory from my high school days where I had taken a conservation trip to Costa Rica and during that trip there was one night where me and my group we had gone out onto the beach deep in the nighttime to kind of look up and down the shoreline for uh, turtles. Since, mm. you know, we're kind of aware of this issue where these leatherback turtles will come onto shore to lay eggs and they will get attacked either by wildlife or poachers and we were trying right. to intervene. And all that's to say, um, you know, during this particular life-changing night, we did come across a turtle giving birth. We helped her. Uh, that was such a, a, a visceral and, and, meaningful experience to me that I kind of thought that that night couldn't get any more magical until all of the kind of clouds blew away from the storm that had been going on that night. The sky became utterly clear. And it was my first time really seeing the night without any light pollution. Mm. And, you know, for anyone who's had the privilege to, uh, to get that view you know, I think I think many people understand that that feeling that really kind of grips you up and makes you go very still, or at least for me, that's what it did. And it was such an indelible memory that when I was in college trying to just figure out, do I like anything enough to kind of put, you know, these next four years toward it? Uh, that's the memory that came up. So I kind of got into some introductory astro classes, despite having no mathematical or physical background. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was very tough. I stumbled a lot. I experienced a lot of failure and um, a lot of obstacles, a lot of runaround. But I never kind of gave up and I stuck it out. And I, I took every chance I had to stay in the astro field. And it's really, truly rewarded me in a lot of different ways. So um, at this point, astro is definitely in my blood. I love that. Um, I... So I grew up in uh, Colorado. That, that was where I spent most of my childhood, you know, and, and I grew up in a community that um, at the time was was growing. But, I, you know, we were the only uh, house on the street for a long time. So I had kind of that un unadulterated view of, of the sky right next to the Rocky Mountains, of course. And um it was just such a, a formative experience for me. We went camping several times in Wyoming as well. And there's, you know, there's nothing out in Wyoming to obstruct <laughs> your view of, of the stars. Um, and as a, a kid, I I had a very, man, a, a very formative experience of like, just constantly wondering, you know, like, what else is there in the universe, you know, aside from just us human beings. And that inspired for me a love of science fiction, like science mm. fiction was kind of the, the gateway, I think, to uh, opening my mind to a lot of big human philosophical questions. 
Um, that of course led me further into literature. I, I told you, I, I dabbled a little bit. I took one intro to astronomy course and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not going to change my, my mind at all, but I was glad to have at least some of that experience and, uh, and use that for, for inspiring me to read more science fiction anyway. So let's talk a little bit about your birth as an artist. Um, you know, what what spurred you to like want to write this particular novella and kind of start building your identity as an author? My beginning as a as an artist is actually quite a bit earlier than my start as a, a astronomer slash astrophysicist. Um, I remember being, you know, quite young, nine or so, and kind of finally taking action on this this rising impulse uh, inside of me to try my hand at writing since I was a voracious reader as a child um the the kid that gets in trouble for reading <laughs> which shouldn't that you know I I, I couldn't possibly imagine saying that to a child but you know um that was me <laughs> and uh I I remember as a child just starting to try my hand so writing about anything that came to mind songs you know, storms that sound silly, colors, uh, just random topics that struck me in the moment. And then I would inflict, you know, the the product, whatever came out upon my parents. And they were so kind about encouraging that, um, even though I, I, I don't think I was a natural by any means. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, I think I've written almost every day since. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, um uh, also in the blood I guess I would say but uh <laughs> that I think is kind of where scourge came from writing became a way for me to uh, engage with and interpret a lot of the things that were going on in my life mm -hmm. over the years and uh, scourge came about in 2020 mm -hmm. and I guess I well the the origin story of the novella is uh a, a bit strange as well but the impetus for the the story itself the actual narrative just came from that time of feeling under attack almost from every social angle mm. we had protests of racial injustice going on we have a mm -hmm. global pandemic going on things are disappearing from stores or, you know we're cut off from one another etc cetera, etc cetera. and so I really wanted to write a story where um basically uh, uh i i had a, a community going through a lot of these same things but with much higher stakes mm. um and so i would say that uh, scourge really got started as a way for me to um metabolize that time what you you say about this book and and kind of the impetus for you um is really interesting i there were so many different things that i got out of the book that i felt was really interesting you know at the the core of the book is a crisis right and it, it's a crisis basically of resources um because you have the calypso uh i i should probably have you summarize the the novella just for for listeners who haven't read it yet um cuz i read it the day the day it came out i was like <laughs> I charged in. I was like, where is this damn book? Give it to me. <laughs> um, but but I, you know, the the sense of isolation and and the sense of crisis from 
a lack of resources um, just immediately sprung out to me. I was like, how timely is this as we are kind of like constantly talking about whether or not we're facing a human level extinction event uh, of our own making, right? Um, and and how do we on this island of blue earth, you know, figure out how to survive um, the the situation that we've kind of set up for ourselves. So allegorically, that's the right word this time, by the way. Um, <laughs> but allegorically, you know, this book felt so resonant with this current moment, especially as a millennial kind of facing down, like, are we actually going to start facing famine within my lifetime? You know, um, have we pushed our our ecology you know, to the breaking point where really we are going to create a space where it is no longer livable for human beings. And how do we cope with that um, in this this material moment? Absolutely. The questions that you brought up were so heavy on my mind at the time of writing. And I love how you articulate them here. And, uh, you know, I think that for me, because I, I, I taught a course on astronomy and introductory astrobiology for six years, and one big component of that course was talking about climate change, uh, as well as you know the the search for other habitable worlds, and um, it's a, it's almost disheartening, the more you learn in both of these areas because the answer that we overwhelmingly keep butting our heads against is, well, and this sounds uh, very fatalistic, but you know, the end is somewhat nigh and there is no you know, planet B. These are the conclusions that so much of modern science are, are pushing us toward. And I wanted, I really, really wanted to just throw the, the, the urgent and, and itchy and uncomfortable feeling that comes with reckoning with those questions into this story. Um, so if, if those came through, if, if that <laughs> feeling of reckoning came through, then, then I'm so glad because that's really, I think I, I, as you brought up, I think that's really the heart of the story, mm -hmm. even though it is a journey about uh, interstellar travel. Yeah. I, I think the framework that you put together with with regards to interstellar travel is is also really interesting because um again I, I maybe we should try to summarize the book just a little bit uh but before I follow through with this question would you mind just sharing like kind of the brief synopsis if you will of of what this book is about Absolutely So The Scourge Between Stars follows acting captain Jacqueline Albright as she fills in for her mysteriously missing father, the captain, on the starship Calypso, which is a generation ship that is on the verge of essentially total collapse uh, in terms of its structure, its resources, and its society. So Jacqueline is struggling to put out all of the figurative fires, and in some cases literal fires, on the ship when uh, suddenly it becomes apparent that perhaps the crew of the Calypso are not the only ones on board. And uh, Jacqueline and uh, her team, which includes the android uh, Watson, whom Jacqueline uh, struggles to accept, they have to hunt down the intruder aboard the Calypso uh, before it ends up being too late for the crew. 
Thank you. Um, stakes are so high in this book. <laughs> it, it really, uh, one of the things that I, I, I have to praise you for in terms of it being a novella is it feels like this, we understand the stakes going in and then it just does not, it does not let up. <laughs> kind of, it is kind of all stress test. And um, that works so well, I think, for both science fiction and horror. Um, mm -hmm. I am a, a we, we kind of started this podcast as a horror podcast. Um, and so I'm always, you know, kind of looking at the way that that horror can kind of act as allegory for a lot of our human stresses and, and you know, kind of help us navigate and cope um, oddly enough, you know, to try to find some hope in our situation. Um, but getting back to this problem of, of interstellar travel, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting that, um, the, you know, Calypso is, is traveling back to earth. They're not actually traveling to this distant star that they've already visited and decided, <laughs> decided that, you know, they've tapped out those resources there too, um, so there's this fascinating kind of human situation in which this crew is is trapped between extremes, right? Like they've they've burned through all available resources and are just clinging to this distant hope that maybe they can make it back where they came from and find out that there's more resources available there that maybe they can cultivate. And I think that that ideological framework um, captures for me so much of the problem of like late capital's uh, response to our destroyed ecology. There's this idea of like limitless resources. If we just reach out into the cosmos, we can harness this stuff to solve the problems that apparently are too expensive to solve back here at home. And it's absurdist to me. Um, and yet it, 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 is steeped in our science fiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from your perspective, especially as someone who got into astrophysics, astro, astrophysics, astro, astronomy, what, which of the two is, are the two fields kind of the same? Yeah, there's a huge overlap. I I once heard uh, a, a colleague of mine, um, like when asked the question, like, are you an astronomer or are you an astrophysicist? They said, I'm an astronomer when I want to continue the conversation, and I'm an astrophysicist when I want to just walk away. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I wish that worked for, well, actually, it does work, because anytime I say, like, oh, yeah, cultural studies, gone. Like, they're just... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants to talk cultural studies with me um it's it's the same reason why like none of the family will ask me my hot takes on on something like you know like woke media right or uh -huh. um, what was the oh critical race theory uh Ooh. they would come to me and and they'd be like um what do you think of this critical race theory i'm like have you have you pardon my language but have you fucking read any because, <laughs> because I've got literal shelves over here that I, mm -hmm. that I can feed you if you really want to have this conversation. But come back to me in three months when you've actually read one of these books and understand it. Um, anyway, getting back to, to kind of this uh, like 
conservationist um, kind of origin for you. I, I mean, you know, what were some of the things that were really on your mind that you were wanting to address in this particular book and, and how it fits into this longstanding conversation um, in science fiction, you know, about these very same problems? I first I will say that you know I grew up on um science fiction that is optimistic mm-hmm. and is um you know peddling this message of human drive determination uh and ability to overcome the impossible and at a core level I believe in that <laughs> but <laughs> um Uh, as I kind of mentioned before, just the experience that I had learning for myself and teaching others the current research on where we are realistically at, at a technological level, uh, as well as at an environmental stage. um, I I wouldn't go so far as to call it irresponsible um, to, to, you know, churn out these messages that, you know, not a problem for humans, we will simply overcome. Uh, I think we need that spirit, but maybe there's something irresponsible about only producing and consuming those messages. Mm. And so I wanted to have a narrative where, one, we're confronted with the fact that humanity still has not learned the vital lesson of survival where, you know, as you pointed out, we ruined one planet and, you know, couldn't quite make it on another planet. And so we're just going to continue for it. We're going to take that chance. Um, and I think in some cases it's appropriate, but as Scourge Between Stars, uh, you know, kind of shows in other scenarios, we have to pause. We have to think critically about the limits of what we are today not what we can be tomorrow Mm. and and start taking action there not on a on a promise Mm. uh, or on like a glimmer and so i did want to start the story out um in defeat i wanted the fleet Mm. to be broken i wanted it to be isolated and i wanted you know the 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 former glory of Mm. this kind of uh uh maiden voyage to the stars i wanted it to be very tarnished um mm-hmm. and there again the reason for that as you were uh, beautifully stating before is because you know we we still have not gotten used to or good at having these necessary conversations about mm-hmm. how do we act now and you know for whom do we act now honestly um so I think what I really wanted to do with the story is show the folly of continuing that pattern without interrogating it mm. um, and, uh, and, and really generate, as we were saying before, the sense of crisis that I often feel is not present in our media, um, in a lot of the news that is um, you know, coming out now, even as it's covering you know, kind of the precursor <laughs> to the things that would drive the Calypso off of Earth to another star entirely. Yeah, I, d- I don't know where the wake up call is is going to come from. Um, I, re- I, f- I feel like it was Kim Stanley Robinson who was talking about um, this notion of like terraforming another planet and, and mm-hmm. how we continue to see our our um, 
media, you know, constantly talk about like, well, you know, we'll just go to Mars and we'll terraform Mars and, and we'll, we'll turn it into, you know, kind of this human utopia uh, to show the, hu you know, the strength of, of the human race and human ingenuity. Um, and he's kind of like, it's idiotic to think that we would go out and terraform a planet, but we couldn't terraform our own. Right. Mm. Um, and I, I, I just continue to come back, you know, to, to, to these, these messages and, and really think about like, how are we, how are we actually using um, our resources, our technology? Um, and, and, you know, wh when's the breaking point? When is it that we're actually going to stop and see like maybe endless profit is just not good for anybody? <laughs> <laughs> uh, snaps to that. But, but that's not the only, you know, kind of like crisis, if you will, um, that this book represents. The One of the other things that I fe felt was really interesting that ties in thematically with that concept of um you know really how how are we using our resources um how are we thinking of our resources is the character watson um and how watson is treated both as a new emerging technology um but also by uh watson's creator um who maybe has some pretty gross <laughs> ideas <laughs> about watson's place on the ship right right Absolutely. One thing that was uh, that I was conscious of and interested in exploring, even if I, you know, didn't quite have the time and space in a novella format. But one thing I wanted to touch on with this story is how the conversation of AI as a resource has dramatically changed. Because I think we started out, we maybe being the populace, started out in a place of fear and distrust and suspicion of our future robot overlords, you know, uh, how this AI situation could degenerate into, you know, a total loss of human autonomy replaced by mm. the age of the machine. Mm. And I think now we're having a kind of mind boggling conversation about AI as the new future of art and the new you know, mm. future of creation. Um, but although I think that sounds like a humanization uh, of that kind of technology, I think what it is is just a justification you know, to ourselves about putting this new ability to, through the, like treating it as another, a new unlimited resource to mm. tap into and have it churn out, you know, whatever it is we want it to without questioning what's actually going on under the hood. You know, is this an act of creation, you know, or as many people are talking about right now, is this genuine plagiarism? Um, and, you know, that's a, a huge conversation unto itself. Mm -hmm. But where that comes in with Watson is uh, this is a machine that has the capability to do something completely new for the Calypso, which mm. is potentially find its salvation and deliverance. And yet the creator of Watson mistreats, outright mistreats, you know, this, this resource out of a sense of what I think, you know, is, is the, the problem that we deal with today with our resources is a sense of ownership, mm. entitlement, 
Um, I, I don't know what all the, you know, what all the synonyms I should throw in there are, but, you know, I think we oftentimes have this steward of the earth mentality that absolves us of, you know, the, the, the need to, I guess, think critically uh, about the, the ethical use of, of what we have, of the abilities, um, you know, that, that that lie before us obviously watson is a fictional technology uh <laughs> ai is nowhere near that stage at this time but i guess my fear was that the same repetition of mistakes that led to where the callisto is in our narrative is the exact same sorry i can't think of the word but it's it's the exact same mindset that would lead someone to treat watson the way that the android is treated throughout the story. Yeah, absolutely. I so I'm going to spoil just a little bit and and you know, check me if I'm wrong. Um but I mean one of the problems is that Watson's creator really views Watson not just as this new exciting technology, um but like kind of takes a sexual ownership of of Watson as well. Like there's an overt sexualization of Watson's um like body and and i felt like that was as as a creative choice um it was very bold because i I think it speaks to the way that we think not just of you know one another you know like we still have human beings who are constantly trying to claim ownership over bodies i mean we 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 just went through this with the supreme court you know even this Mm. week uh, you know thinking about how we interact as a a society and especially how um i think cis people view lgbtq people and their bodily autonomy um but but also you know with regards to the patriarchy i mean we're never very far away from somebody trying to claim a woman's body for themselves um and so there there was that dynamic but i think it also speaks to a much deeper ideological problem which you 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 speak to is this idea of of like ownership and the idea of exploitation of whatever emerging technology for personal gain in in a, a system of like capitalism where everything is about endless resources and the exploitation of those resources for for the profit of few over the the good of the many we see these emerging technologies and the threat that these emerging technologies you know pose to to human life i think it's not so much in that oh they're going to supplant humans um so much as it's like it's just another tool of the wealthy elite to to continue to oppress to continue to force that ownership um against you know forgive me for being super marxist but the proletariat so it was a it's a brilliantly crafted metaphor um in a character who is an emerging technology um that I thought was just totally brilliant and especially brilliant for this particular um cultural, social, political, economic moment. There's not a question in there, but <laughs> I just need you to know how how I you know, reading this on the page, I was like, more please (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean everything you just said was so beautifully articulated um i knew what i wanted to try to express and i felt like 
in the feelings I was stewing in while writing this story, which included, you know, helplessness and a sense of exploitedness, a huge sense of that during that summer. Um, you know, I, I just rushing to, to exercise that and, and hopefully get it on a page. So it, it means everything, you know, that, that that is like coming through in a way. And I, I briefly wanted to go back to um, the, what Watson is going through in this yeah. narrative because, um, you know, I, I think that the treatment of Watson was uncomfortable for some readers. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, uh, <laughs> on one hand, that is the point. It, it should be, right? <laughs> <laughs> please, yes, please, please react with discomfort to this. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, uh, as a reader, I also am intensely discomforted by a story elements like that but for me I think one thing I was thinking about is Jacqueline our main mm. character um she's black and she's queer yes and the narrative I wanted to make the narrative not punish her in any way for either of those things just mm. be her authentic self yes. have the story respect her for that um and then kind of you know it, it's not a focal point it's just part of who she is and we're going Yes. Um, and I think, you know, as a Black non-binary person, so often I want to read media where that is the case and I want to imagine a future where that is the case. It's just simple and instinctual acceptance. Um, but I think in the other things that I was trying to do with the story and the other topics I was trying to cover, um, I, I, I didn't want to leave that particular horror that particular uh, expression of exploitation out of the narrative, because I think it is equally present, and I would even venture to say sometimes intimately entwined with the mm -hmm. environmental exploitation that we've kind of talked about uh, so far as well. And so, one thing uh, I don't I don't, I don't want to spoil too much of Watson's journey uh, through the narrative, <laughs> but. You know, I just wanted it to be very clear by the end that the false body parts, the pronouns, you know, that were pushed on Watson, mm -hmm. as we start to see a lot of these things fall away and we start to see the machine express its own agency. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, that was a mini story that I wanted to just kind of walk beside the main storyline of, of a, of a post-prejudiced, you know, quote-unquote society. Yes. So there is, you know, forgive me if I, I misread Jacqueline's relationship to Watson, but I think there's a lot of skepticism that Jacqueline brings to their relationship, uh, you know, kind of at the beginning of the book. But as Jacqueline learns more about Watson and sees, you know, the way that, that Watson is in particular being, um, you know, mistreated or exploited, um, I think Jacqueline learns a whole lot more empathy for Watson and builds that relationship. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because that that actually was part of my next question was about the importance of this representation and the importance of the messiness of some of the relationships that Jacqueline has to, to other crew members. The kind of paranoia and imposter syndrome that she experiences as a commanding officer, you know, a, a, a black queer woman commanding officer of a ship. 
you know, I don't, I don't know if you want to keep exploring more of of how that really resonated with you as an author and the way that that colors some of the other relationships. But I would absolutely love to hear more because this was another very important component of this book to me. Um, forgive me for saying this, but you know, one of the reasons why this was one of my most anticipated reads this year was because this bitching cover of a black lady <laughs> on a <laughs> ship, I was like, let's go. I am so ready for more stories like this. Oh, yes. And all props to Chris McGrath, um, the oh so talented artist who I think captured so much of what I hope would come through with Jacqueline. You know, we she's she's tense, she's scared, but she's still a badass on this cover. And, uh, you know, that's where I hope we would go with that. But um, the comparisons that have been made between The Scourge Between Stars and um, really classic sci-fi horror stories, like, of course, Alien, you know, that's oh, yeah, like... Yeah, <laughs> It, it it I don't think we can ever get away from talking about alien because it is the language of science fiction horror, you know, like yes. it it is a formative dictionary for the kinds of tropes and the imagery that we get, of course. Absolutely. It's like talking fantasy in a post-Tolkien landscape. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh so uh you know these these comparisons are so flattering so so flattering because you know obviously alien is the standard um but i guess i think for some people this story this setting these stakes could be tired um maybe a little bit recycled but for other communities who have never had these stories, these narratives, or have never been placed in these particular stakes, um, these heroic stakes. Mm. I think, you know, for me, it's worth going back to these classic tropes, um, you know, these these genre standard tropes, and and seeing how we fit and what we look like in these scenarios and in these stories. So for Jacqueline. It was so, so important to me to certainly have Black female representation in uh, this leadership role that uh, Jacqueline inhabits in the story. Um, and of course, queer representation as well, unpunished queer representation. Um, because, you know, the there's still a dearth, there's still mm. a hole, you know, for many people, many communities uh, who have yet to see themselves in those roles and and supported and encouraged by the stories themselves. Um, so although, you know, Alien has been around and, and has kind of dominated this genre crossover for so many decades, uh, for me, it was very important to still explore, uh, you know, the, the setting and these stakes, but, you know, with people who don't kind of get to see ourselves uh, there very often. Yeah. It's funny that we've we've talked for, you know, almost uh, 50 minutes now, and I, I don't think we've even brought up the aliens in this book at all. <laughs> oh, crazy. And I mean, I, I love the aliens for sure, but I, I felt like, you know, the aliens aren't even the problem here. <laughs> they're, just, you know, they're just another kind of like, you know, catalyst for, for drama. 
Um, so I I don't want to to leave this conversation without talking about the importance of hope, because I think the, the book, you know, one of the things that that I've seen in just some some odd criticisms is some talk about the the very end of the book and mm-hmm. how it is very dynamically different in tone than the the rest of the stress test of this novel. And I, but I think that hopeful anecdote, I think that uh, maybe even hope, hopeful antidote, right, is very important to the thematic messaging of this book. And I kind of want to hear from you a little bit about, for those millennials like myself, who look out the window of a 105 degree day and freak out about how we're going to survive this, you know, where does our hope come from or what should we look to in ourselves or even externally um, to assist us in building toward the future we want to see for ourselves? I totally hear and, um, and I, I hear and I totally understand like a, a gut reaction uh, maybe to the ending of the story, which kind of seems all tied up in a bow, maybe. But for me, what I am kind of trying to get at, even from you know maybe the beginning of the story, is that the reason we keep making we being you know the ultimate crew of the Calypso, where we start, the reason why humanity keeps making these same mistakes, and we keep ending up in these scenarios of isolation, scarcity is, I think, because of a broken sense of community. Mm. I think that when you look out for self and self alone, yours and yours alone, you do want to hoard and you want to stockpile uh, and you, you know, do not want to share and, and disseminate. And I think that, um, you know, the, this is, that's certainly like a a more personal description, you know, what the individual feels like, but when that appears on a systematic scale, you know, it results in us needing to, you know, jettison from earth or us having to turn back from what we thought was a paradise. And so I believe, you brought up the word like antidote earlier, but I believe the antidote to that is rediscovering community. So at the end, without, I guess, <laughs> spoiling everything, we see um, Jacqueline maybe release some of the grief and suspicion that had prevented her from feeling a full sense of community on board. We see her actually making genuine connection um, you know, with Watson, for whom she couldn't, she couldn't allow or she couldn't generate that feeling before. And that for me, was uh, reflected in the ultimate ending where we see that we're actually embedded in a much larger community than mm-hmm. just our earthly, just our our human community. And we don't know anything about, you know, that kind of interstellar scale mm. kind of neighborhood to which we belong. But kind of when we're ready to participate in community on that level, then, you know, we, we reap the rewards Mm. and, you know, 
the the time constraints, the space constraints of a novella mean that I can't explore everything I want to explore. <laughs> I can't articulate everything I want to articulate. But, you know, the Calypso is a community that ultimately refigures out how to come together. It takes a crisis. It takes, you know, an intruder and blood and guts. But they ultimately, you know, reforge those bonds. And they're hoping, you know, at the end of the story to continue reforging such bonds with, you know, those who who couldn't participate in the journey to Proxima B. And I guess I just wanted to leave the door open for the possibility of one day forging those bonds on the scale that we as a society wanted to participate at, um, mm. but but couldn't. Mm. I love this book. Um, this is <laughs> this is such a beautifully constructed, very complex book. Um, thank you so much for sharing it with me, with the world, uh, and and for sharing your thoughts. So what is on the horizon for you creatively? Um, do you have any other works kind of percolating right now that you're ready to kind of share? Sure. I recently finished something very different from Scourge. Uh, I finished a great big brick of a fantasy book. Ooh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to uh, take a hard turn from the science where... Scourge was actually, I would say, heavily based on, excuse me, uh, the astrobiology course uh, mm -hmm. that I taught. And so many elements of the story are lifted directly from the materials that I shared with my students, the lessons uh, that we had together. And so with my fantasy book, I kind of wanted to take a look at some of the other experiences that I've had as an astronomer, where uh, there have been many times when I've introduced myself and explained that, you know, I work in astro. And, you know, a person will get very excited and then they'll say, oh, that's amazing. Can you tell me my horoscope? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I would say the first few times I had a certain reaction to that. Um, and then after a while, it started becoming very charming to me. Um, and there's <laughs> a lot of a lot of passion there uh in the populace and so uh with this fantasy book i kind of just um you know had the idea to say well let's run with it let's let's do something with astrology uh and so you know if i can uh one day get my fantasy book onto shelves i think readers could look forward to um you know seeing what happens when an apprentice astrologer uh <laughs> <laughs> does not follow his master's teachings and uh, kind of crazy things unfold from there. I, yeah, I'm so excited for this. Uh, you don't even know my, so one of my first like grown up jobs, if you will. Um, I, I wrote for a newspaper and uh, one of the things that I did writing for a newspaper was I wrote the horoscopes for <laughs> <laughs> And there was, I sorry to burst anyone's bubble, but there was no scientific inquiry involved whatsoever. It was just whatever I was feeling that day, you were going to feel it too. <laughs> now it's your forecast. Yes. <laughs> so that's very, that's very, very, that sounds really, really fun. And it sounds very exciting. I hope, I hope to see it on, on shelves, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, 
where can people find you online if they would like to know more about your future projects or if they would just like to learn about some of the things you do in Astro? Yeah, so my personal website is ness-brown.com. And, um, you know, I have a bit of my background, um, what I'm about, as well as information about my books and how to get them. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Ness the Novelist. Um, and on those platforms, you can hear me complain about <laughs> astrophysics at the graduate level and sometimes <laughs> post pictures of my cats. <laughs> that is so awesome. Thank you uh, a million times for coming on the show today and sharing your mind. Uh, this has been a real treat for me. And uh, I encourage any listeners, please go out, find The Scourge Between Stars. It is on bookshelves everywhere. It is a fantastic novella. You're not going to be disappointed.